0: Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Centre, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by Drs. Philip Gooding and Arjusman Chowdhury, two postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC.
0: Hi Renee, thank you very much for having me
2: here again. Hi, Rene. Thank you very much for having me here again.
1: So you will hear more from them later on, but our guest today is Professor James Warren, a professor of history and Southeast Asian studies at Murdoch University in Western Australia. Professor Warren has held positions at the Australian National University, Yale University, the Centre for Southeast Asian Studies at Kyoto University, and the Asia Research Institute at the University of Singapore. He is also a research associate at the Indian Ocean World Center and a partner in our ongoing appraising risk partnership project. Professor Warren has written several influential books, including, but not limited to, the second edition of The Sulu Zone, 1768 to 1898, published in 2007 in Singapore by the NUS Press, The Sulu Zone, The World Capitalist Economy and the Historical Imagination, published in 2008 by Amsterdam in Amsterdam by VU University Press, and Pirates, Prostitutes, and Pullers, published by the University of Western Australia Press in 2008. Today, Professor Warren is joining us to discuss aspects of his past and ongoing research into typhoons, global climate, and monocrop agriculture in the Philippines during the Spanish and American colonial eras. So, Professor Warren, welcome. It's an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hello, Renee. Hello Archiesemann and Philip. Um, it's good to be talking with you today.
1: Um, so first of all, could you just in broad terms, discuss your research into monocrop agriculture? So for our listeners who aren't aware, monocrop agriculture is the growth of the same crop year after year on the same plot of land, reducing ecological diversity and soil fertility. So. How did colonial rule and the climate in the Philippines impact monocrop agriculture? And what were the monocrops? Who instituted them and why? And how were the crops and farmers affected by climactic variations, including typhoons?
3: Thank you, Renee. Uh, In an effort to answer Renee's question, I would like to go back to the future. Uh, My interest in commodity supply chains and monocrop agriculture first emerged in my earlier work in the Sulu Zone and in my books, the Sulu Zone 1768 to 1898 and Iranin and Balangini. I discovered that at the end of the 18th century, the West's search for suitable marine and tropical forest commodities, such as pearls and pearl shell, tree pang or sea cucumber, shark's fin, birds' nests, wax, and rattans to exchange for Chinese tea led to the establishment of a permanent traffic in slaves in the Sulu zone. This growth in the trade and circulation of commodities was certainly the most plausible reason for the Sulu Sultanate's stunning regional expansion after 1780. Now in this new globalized world, holo, the capital of the Sultanate, Canton and London, were all interconnected and increasingly interdependent upon one another. The Sulu Sultan, with his port capital located on the coast of Holo, the Antropo, and the neighboring areas, incorporated a set of cultural institutional practices typical of pre-colonial trading states. These practices were based on redistribution for the production and acquisition of such commodities, on the one hand, and kinship, warfare, slavery, and other forms of social organization and culture on the other. Within the Sulu Zone, centers of distribution and exchange developed. The Sultanate established itself as a major regional entrepôt and slave emporium. The steady influx of captives and slaves to collect and process the marine and forest commodities for the thriving tea-driven Canton market made the location of the Sulu Sultanate one of the most strategic cross-cultural hubs to conduct global local trade in Southeast Asia. At the same time, the power and wealth of the Tausug, the dominant ethnic group, and the Iranian and Balanyi saltwater slavers grew, and they became a challenge to the dominion of the Spanish colonizers who sought to colonize the Philippines and monopolize the trade of the region. There are several themes and topics from the Sulu zone and Aranen and Balanyi that reappear in my more recent research on Philippine typhoons, namely certain commodities that are wanted elsewhere in the world, like sugar, tobacco, pepper, and abaca, the nexus between local, regional, and global trade, monopoly-based extractive economies, coerced labor, climate cycles, and the weather factor itself. Although the weather and climate that had been used as an asset by the Muslim slave raiders had an altogether different part to play in the development of monocrop agriculture typhoons, floods, and droughts in various parts of Luzon and the Visayas in the Philippines. This brings me to the main agricultural commodities of this discussion, namely tobacco and sugar. However, I should also first briefly mention the failed experiment in pepper production in the provinces of Camarinas and Tayabas on southern Luzon. There was a growing demand in the Baltic states and Mediterranean Europe for pepper from the 1780s to the 1820s. One that was met primarily by Chinese cultivators in Siam, Vietnam, and the Malay Peninsula. In the Spanish Philippines, pepper cultivation took the all too familiar guise of an undeviating monopoly. Peasant cultivators in the provinces of Camarinas and Tayabas on Southern Luzon were compelled to grow stipulated amounts of pepper for which they received the fixed price for their export product. The Spanish crown hoped that church managed small holder production of pepper, referred to as black gold in the coastal and port towns of Northern Europe, would generate huge profits with private backing. Consequently, the Spanish zealously promoted the experiment in pepper cultivation. They succeeded in developing the cultivation of pepper plants in Tayabas, Camarines, Cavite, Iloilo, Misamis, and Zamboanga. In 1781, the then governor of the Spanish Philippines, hoping to make large profits from the, pep- the pepper plantations, issued a decree stipulating that the Real Compania de Filipinas, established through royal decree, and the crown would buy for five years, all pepper harvested in the various provinces at the fixed price of 20 pesos per pickle. A pickle was 133 pounds. However, the Spanish had not fully taken into consideration the possible impact of extreme weather on the development of these plantations. From the records of the Royal Company and various religious orders, it is possible to trace the details of the development of pepper cultivation in the provinces over several decades, and how typhoons, floods, and drought events affected the success or failure of this experimental economy. Now let me return to tobacco and sugar. Unlike the marine produce from the Sulu zone, these cash crops do not grow naturally like in the ocean, just lying there waiting to be harvested. Instead, the process of the growth and production of monocrops for export are altogether different. They are not exactly indigenous to the Philippines, and and these crops require land that is fertile, water, investment in cultivation techniques, a captive pool of labor, and ways to get the produce from the farm gate to the market. The market itself is reliant on consumers, so let me first move to discuss these consumers in relation to tobacco. In the pre-Hispanic Americas, tobacco occupied a central place in the sacred rituals celebrated by many indigenous people. Smoke through a pipe, the narcotic qualities of the plant allowed consumers to experience its magical qualities and escape into a world of ceremony, magic, and myth. From the Americas, tobacco was initially introduced into Portugal as a medicinal herb in 1559, and by 1570, it was being used in France as a prophylactic, a so-called holy herb for treatment of coughs, cramps, gout, diseases of women, worms, tumors, and syphilis. Tobacco swept through Europe quickly, and by 1603, the end of the reign of Elizabeth I in England, it was smoked widely and worth its weight in silver. Around the same time as Elizabeth I was sampling tobacco's magical powers, the plant was introduced into the Philippines during the era of Spanish colonization when the Augustinians brought cigar tobacco seeds to the colony for cultivation. The Augustinians were the first religious order to attempt to reduce the natives of the Cagayan Valley in 1581. Over the following decades, the indigenous people grew the herb for their own use and developed a liking for the drug. At the end of the 18th century, Spanish entrepreneurs realized that the Cagayan Valley presented an ideal commercial opportunity for the large scale cultivation of tobacco for export, namely by utilizing a captive labor force an extractive economic system, and an environment conducive to growing tobacco. They set about with gusto, convincing the unsuspecting and often naive indigenous farmers to switch from polycrop to monocrop agriculture. By 1786, the Spanish crown, realizing the revenue gathered, realizing the revenue gathering potential of tobacco, extended the monopoly on tobacco grown in Luzon, including the Cagayan Valley. The initial profits derived from Cagayan tobacco resulted in the exclusive possession and control of the sale and manufacture of all tobacco shipped to Spain. Cultivators in the Cagayan Valley were thus compelled to meet quotas and hand their crops to agents, receiving a fixed price. The impact of this monopoly on these tobacco farmers was harsh. We know that the farmers protested because the archival records contain comments such as, quote, the Indios had no cause to protest over a monopoly on tobacco when people in Spain had to support a monopoly on salt and, quote, people don't need to use it, end quote. According to Francisco Leandro de Viana, the crown attorney of the Audiencia de Manila, an advocate of the monopoly, the Indios or Filipinos learned to smoke before they learned to think. Nevertheless, the monopoly did cause real hardship to people in Cagayan, who had come to regard tobacco as a holy herb, and their protests fell on deaf Spanish ears for decades. This monopoly of a commodity that had become so vital to the Filipino way of life also caused great resentment. Tobacco was considered a panacea for ailments and they pleaded for it from parish priests in times of calamity, calling out Padre tobacco, Padre tobacco, Father tobacco, Father tobacco. The The monopoly, not surprisingly, led to an increase in smuggling and banditry. So while the Indios, a coerced workforce, produced tobacco for their Spanish masters, the weather conspired to make life difficult for both links, that is producers and procurers, in the tobacco chain. Certain areas of northern Luzon became increasingly prone to flooding, drought events, and soil degradation because of the introduction of tobacco cultivation and the related linked problems of poor watershed and land management, population increase, and the El Niño climate cycle. The variability of the El Niño Southern Oscillation, the ENSO, and the changing pattern of the size and intensity of typhoons had major impacts on the Cagayan Valley and its cash crop export agriculture. These cyclonic storms imposed temporal patterns phased lock to annual and interdecadal cycles accompanied by heavy rainfall and ENSO-related droughts. Typhoons and floods provide a a partial explanation of why the monopoly could not meet the increased demand for its tobacco. Despite the measures taken in northern Luzon to protect to protect tobacco crops against the elements, little could be done to mitigate against an unannounced typhoon or flood. Typhoon winds destroyed the largest warehouses and drying sheds under the crown monopoly, and later the prefabricated steel structures of the Compania Tabacalera. The storms repeatedly sank vessels laden with tobacco and other goods. Storm-driven torrential downpours caused sudden floods along the Rio Grande or Great River in the Cagayan Valley. In the first four decades of the 20th century, typhoons brought periodic hunger and destitution to people living along the rivers of Northern Luzon, while floods often damaged and or destroyed tobacco and livestock. I would now like to shift my attention from small farmer cash-crop production of tobacco to large hacienda-style sugar production. But let's look first at the sugar supply chain and the consumers. In 1000 AD, few Europeans knew of the existence of sugar, but by 1650 in England, the nobility and the wealthy had become inveterate sugar eaters and sugar-figured in their medicine, literary imagery, and displays of rank. By 1800, sugar had become a rare and costly necessity in the diet of every English person. By 1900, it was supplying nearly one fifth of the calories in the English diet. Sugar was inextricably tied to new trajectories of taste and habitual needs associated with drinking sweetened coffee and tea. Sidney Mintz explains that To learn the anthropology of sugar, we need to examine the sources of supply, the chronology of uses, and the combination of sugar with other foods, including honey, which is also sweet, and tea, coffee, and chocolate, which are bitter. The sources of sugar include the tropical and subtropical regions that were transformed into colonies, while the crucial factors for understanding its history include the relationship between the colonies, between the colonies and the colonizers and between the areas that produced the bitter foods and the people who were coerced to grow sugar. It is also necessary to take into consideration those goods that are used to pay for the sugar, slaves, brandy, guns, etc. In other words, a full commodity chain that includes all the various mechanisms of the production supply and payment of sugar needed to be, needs to be considered. as Mintz commented, only when I began to learn more about particular relationships between planters in the colonies and bankers, entrepreneurs and different groups of consumers in the metropolises did I begin to puzzle over what demand really was, to what extent it could be regarded as natural, what is meant by words like taste and preference, and even good. When Legaspi arrived to colonize the archipelago for Spain, 1565, sugarcane was a minor crop in the Philippines, grown using the shifting cultivation method. The Spanish, however, by the 17th century, encouraged sugar cultivation for export to support the economy of the colony and empire. While a small amount of sugar was produced for Filipino use, it was to become a bulk commodity with its own set of economic forces and environmental demands, as well as patterns of desire and consumption. As Mintz explained, there are great differences between families using ancient wooden machinery and iron cauldrons to boil up a quantity of sugar to sell to their neighbors and the massed men and machinery employed in producing thousands of tons of sugarcane and eventually of sugar on modern plantations for export elsewhere. Until the 17th century, sugarcane had grown wild in Southeast Asia. The Spanish had introduced the private ownership of land, and the land-related system of the encomienda, or estate plantation with Legazpi. However, Spanish influence upon land tenure had a little impact upon agricultural technology, especially with respect to the large-scale cultivation and refining of sugar. The Spanish did little to alter the basic production systems during its years of colonization. It was not until the American era that sugar became an important commercial crop with the development of modern industry. The development of this cash crop created distinctive patterns that both shaped and transformed regional landscapes, particularly on the irrigated plain of central Luzon and Northern and Western Negros, where cane cultivation and production assumed major importance. Sugar cultivation requires rich and well-drained soils. In the 19th century, the government targeted lands in Pampanga and Tarlac on Luzon for sugar growing. At this time, pioneer farmers and sugar hacenderos began felling the forest and building roads. The provincial elite, the principal landowners, were predominantly of Spanish and Chinese mestizo descent. They acquired land through grants or purchase from the royal domain, establishing the basis of a systematic pattern of estate holdings that were developed in the second half of the 19th century. By then, Chinese mestizos had become part of the landowning elite, extending their holdings northward from Pampanga and Bulacan. John Larkin has shown that they acquired extensive sugarcane and rice lands through extending mortgages Pacto de Retroventa, to unwitting settlers. A gradual shift from cultivation of rice to sugar as a cash crop took place. And the early 19th century witnessed an expansion of the commercial production and export of sugar to Western Europe and North America. Sugar from the provinces of Pampanga and Pangasinan dominated this supply chain until the 1840s. A decade later at mid-century, there was a rapid expansion of sugar cultivation in the western Visayas. The islands of Negros and Panay became dotted with commercial haciendas run chiefly by a new sino philippine elite and significantly worked by Filipino labor. Again, Mintz explains, the chemical and mechanical transformations by which substances are bent to human use and become unrecognizable to those who know them in nature, have marked our relationship to nature for almost as long as we have been human. But the division of labor by which such transformations are realized can impart additional mystery to the technical processes. When the locus of manufacture and that of use are separated by time and space, when the makers and users are as little known to each other, the mystery will deepen. What is this mystery? In the case of sugar production in Negros, the mystery unknown to sugar consumers was that the growing diversion of farmers away from rice cultivation to sugar estates and the factory floor led to Negros becoming a land of famines and epidemics. In the first quarter of the 20th century, Many villages in wet rice areas were legally required to devote their land to cane cultivation. The previously diversified system of crop production shifted to monocrop agriculture. At the same time, the colonial insular government offered contracts to individuals to process cane on a large scale, lending businessmen funds for the expensive milling machinery and requiring them to deliver sugar on behalf of specified accounts. By 1912, the modern sugar industry involved long-term contracts between cane growers and corporate concerns that milled the cane, reduced the sugar, and exported it. Under American rule, the so-called sugar-growing district, a unique system of contract planting and corporate processing within quasi-legal areas was created. Large centrifugal sugar mills were erected. Handsome profits were made upon the opening of the American market to Philippine sugar, which greatly stimulated its production. The U.S. capitalized on market opportunities created in the aftermath of the First World War, having anticipated the expansion of sugar cultivation and construction of sugar mills. By 1920, the colonial government built a vastly improved road system in parts of Luzon and the Western Visayas to meet the needs of the mill and plantation owners, who under Spanish rule had been handicapped by poor roads and bridges. But by the mid 1920s, the insular colonial government was advised to get out of the sugar business. The sugar centrals are one of the government's major investments in the Philippines, due to the high post-war prices for refined sugar. However, despite record post-war prices, the mills were unable to meet interest payments and were in default to the banks. As a quasi-public enterprise, the government-owned centrals could only become profitable if placed in the hands of private entrepreneurs. Moreover, government ownership meant the advance of large amounts of capital annually for extensions maintenance and crop loans due to typhoon and flood damage, cash advances which were next to impossible to meet in bad years. Consequently, the masked men on the factory floor were then often faced with famine and epidemic. As well as the global sugar price, the weather also played its part in hampering the burgeoning sugar industry in the Philippines. In the records of Jesuit meteorologists, as well as their monthly meteorological bulletins, we read of typhoons that rampage across the sugar districts of Negros and Panay, damaging the buildings and fields, flooding crops, disrupting the coastal shipping trade, and cutting lines of communication. The lingering damage done to the cane and the wet weather that often followed in a typhoon's wake also seriously affected the sucrose content of sugar. The recurrent nature of the typhoons periodically squashed hopes of recovery and progress in these cash crop dependent colonial and post-colonial economies. The frequency and intensity of the typhoons not only destroyed current output, they also destroyed future output because the storms also damaged capital goods and the local regional infrastructure. Education and public works would lag behind other regions And a sizable portion of the population remain chronically malnourished in areas where tobacco, pepper, sugar, and abaca and coconuts were cultivated.
1: Well, thank you so much, Professor Warren. Um, So you provoke some very interesting questions here, uh, which I'm sure our postdoctoral fellows would be happy to inquire about. Uh, So just before I pass on the questioning to Philip, I will let our listeners know that maps of the Sulu Zone can be found below our podcast recording on our Appraising Risk website. Uh, You may also be able to, you will also be able to see the Philippines, a map of the Philippines, including Luzon, Negros, and the Cagayan, as well as any other maps that Professor Warren finds relevant to his presentation for the better geographical understanding of our listeners. So I digress. Philip, do you have any questions uh, for Professor Warren?
0: Yes, thanks, Renee, And thank you, Professor Warren, for this uh, really illuminating paper. Um, my question um, relates to something you touched on very late in your presentation, uh, and it's broadly speaking about colonial science. Um, you noted uh, that Jesuit meteorological bulletins uh, were an important source for your research and that the Americans aren't taking control of the Philippines in 1898, immediately employed Jesuit meteorologists to create a weather guide for the archipelago. And I think this may speak to several themes in the history of science, which perhaps um, you could discuss. Um, Was the Americans demand because the Spanish did not systematically seek to understand the Philippines climate, or because the Americans did not trust or did not have access to Spanish records or knowledge? how well did the Jesuits actually, Jesuits actually end up understanding the climate of the Philippines in the first half of the 20th century? How much did they get right? Did they make any advances, advances on what was known during the Spanish era? Uh, what did they get wrong? Uh, and I suppose what was left unknown?
3: Thank you very much Philip, uh, For your question. Uh, The Jesuits were expelled from the Philippine archipelago in 1768. When their order returned to the islands nearly a century later, the reinstated Jesuit fathers would help pioneer the theory and practice of the new science of meteorology, and I might add also seismology and volcanology. Uh, Particularly the systematic study of cyclonic storms, weather models, and reliable forecasting techniques for the Asian Pacific Basin with particular reference to meteorology. By the end of the 19th century, they had managed to establish in Manila a world-standard meteorological observatory. The Jesuits Manila Observatory went through several transformations depending on the political masters in charge at any given time the Spanish, then the Americans, and after the Second World War, the Philippine government itself. Three men were particularly important in the early work of the observatory. Father Federico Fara was the founder and director of the Miller Observatory from 1865 until his death in 1897 uh, during the Spanish period. Father Jose Algay reorganized the meteorological service of the Philippines under American rule and was at the helm of the observatory from May 1901 until his retirement in 1925. The following year, 1926, Father Miguel Selga took over the reins and developed a system that allowed for the tracking and forecasting of deadly cyclonic storms with ever more accuracy and reliability. These three Spanish Jesuit fathers pioneered the collection of climatic data using scientific methods and the precision instruments that were at their disposal. The Jesuit meteorological records and scientific data rapidly accumulated across the years and the information collected was essential for reconstructing the long-term history of cyclonic storms. From the start, the Jesuit meteorologists codified and published their findings about typhoons and other natural hazards in scientific journals or monographs. Found in the observatory records are the macro empirical data, the personal correspondence, singular files and published monographs that link the unfolding history of the Manila Observatory with local regional, social and environmental histories, patterns and trends. The Manila Observatory, the forerunner of the current Philippine Weather Bureau was the final repository for the Philippine weather records before the Second World War. Tragically in 1945, much of this macro empirical data was lost when the observatory was destroyed in the bitterly contested battle to liberate Manila. Despite the enormous loss, the Jesuit staff of the observatory managed to save a small cross-section of pre-war records that are of considerable historical value. These fragments, letters, notes, reports, pieced together as a discrete collection were all that remain from the unparalleled set of records compiled and collected for the pioneering establishment of modern meteorology and the wealth of other scientific, technological and social data accumulated by by the Jesuits over the previous 80 years. Let me now move to the relationship between the Manila Weather Observatory and the Americans. In November, 1898 in Manila Bay, on board the bridge of the flagship of the American fleet, the Olympia, A carefully arranged meeting with Admiral Dewey and the Jesuit meteorologist Father Jose Alge was to pave the way for the reorganization of the Manila Weather Observatory under American rule. But this momentous meeting was to do more. Dewey had already demonstrated to the world in stunning fashion that America's most important weapon as an emerging colonial power in the Eastern Pacific was its Navy. He realized that the potentially devastating consequences of extreme weather in the Asian Pacific basin was as great a nemesis as a potential enemy in terms of sending ships, even entire fleets to the bottom of the sea in cyclonic storms. Admirals of the American fleet stationed in Manila Bay had already visited the Manila Observatory and were enormously impressed by its meteorological and scientific work. The admirals recognized in Algay's character and intellect a scientific Superman of sorts and a skillful, articulate Spanish Jesuit administrator. The November meeting between Dewey and Algay resulted in a marriage between Jesuit science and American imperialism with powerful implications for both partners. Alge's extraordinary, extraordinary pioneering scientific account of the climate and storms of the Philippines, Baguios y Cyclones Filipinos, the Studio Practico, or Baguios of Filipino Cyclones, a study in theory and practice was published in 1897. And it took a prominent place in the literature on cyclonology And was a volume much prized by Navigators. A revised and expanded English edition of this special report was published in 1904 as Cyclones of the Far East. Also in 1897, Father Alge had given the public his Cyclonometer, an improvement on Father Farah's invention by means of which storms could be foretold not only in the Philippines but throughout the entire Orient. The United States recognized that supporting Alge's work was a pragmatic policy that could help establish America's future success as a colonial power in the islands. The greatest impetus to this development occurred when Dean Wooster and Charles Denby, two members of the Sherman Commission sent to the Philippines by the new insular government, appointed in January 1899, initiated arrangements for the establishment of an independent Philippine Weather Service, patent after that of the United States. These commissioners recommended Alge as director and the existing Manila Observatory House was to become the central office of the Weather Bureau. Alge was asked to draft a plan for a weather service in the Philippines and on the 22nd of May 1901, with new equipment supplied from America, he was able to reorganize the observatorio to encompass the revamped weather bureau. Age's role as a leading authority in his field reached its culmination when he was asked to design an exhibit at the St. Louis World's Fair of 1904. The International Exhibition and Trade Fair provided the Jesuit scientist with the unique opportunity to prepare an exhibit of sweeping scope about the work of the new Weather Bureau in the Philippines and its spectacular technology. From 20 November 1903 to 2 August 1904, Algae was in the United States, engaged in the preparation of the Weather Bureau exhibit. The event may be seen as both defining and announcing the relationship between colonial meteorological science and what it meant to be an American at the beginning of the 20th century. The 1905 introduced American fairgoers to both the marvels of early 20th century architecture and technology and to other people and places. The size and geographical location of the Philippines was of great commercial and strategic importance to the United States because of its geographical position in relation to China and the development of Philippine trade, agriculture and industry under the auspices of the Bureau of Insular Affairs was a matter of significant interest in St. Louis at the close of 1903. For nearly a year, an exposition board of the insular government endeavored to ensure that the Philippine exhibit would give the general public an idea of the value and importance of America's insular possessions in the Orient in relation to products, manufactures, art, and ethnology. Viewed in combination with a related attraction, a so-called Philippine reservation, with more than 1,100 Filipinos on display in traditional costume, the Weather Bureau exhibit showcased the civilizing and modernizing effects of American rule in the islands. In keeping with the goals of the exhibition, The Philippine section reinforced the opposition between past and future, primitive and modern, savage and civilized. Through these dichotomies, the Philippine exhibition effectively rationalized the U.S. occupation of the archipelago in the name of progress. It is important to note that the Jesuits exited the business of prediction and weather forecasting after the end of the Second World War. However, Due to the birth of the jet age and the rise of mass air travel and international tourism, they would start over again and pioneer the study of the ionosphere or high atmosphere in the 1950s in the Philippines.
0: Thank you, Professor Warren. That is really, really uh, illuminating. It's such a, a scientific history I most certainly was not aware about. I am um, now going to turn to my colleague uh, Archman Chowdhury, uh, Achman, uh, do you have a question for Professor Warren as well?
2: Yes, thank you Philip, and thank you Professor Warren. I'm going to ask uh, something very specific to your paper. Uh, while discussing both uh, Spanish and American colonial rule in the Philippines, you speak of how the development of uh, tobacco and sugar cultivation, along with the recurring cycle of typhoons and floods, left uh, rural Filipino societies destitute. And as a result of this, there was often mass exodus of peasants and even the development of uh, folk messianism where peasants turned into armed rebels. And uh, could you, I was wondering if you could tell us how uh, the government or the Spanish and American colonial authorities tried to deal with this situation. Did they try to advance loans to farmers to induce them to stay on, or was their approach uh, more repressive to stop this exodus? Thank you.
3: Thank you, Archisman, uh, for your question. Let me try and answer it. During the Spanish period, there were two powerful colonial institutions, the church and the state and there were regular disagreements between the religious and secular government authorities over the administration of Spanish policy in the colony. This struggle for power was further exacerbated by acrimonious differences between the religious orders and the church administration within the episcopacy of Manila. The friars rejected the archbishop's authority over them and their parishes. However, despite their differences, the monastic orders and the archbishop of Manila possessed considerable power in their dealings with the governor general, who was responsible to the Viceroy of New Spain in Mexico, who answered to the Royal Council of the Indies in Madrid on all matters concerning the Philippines. Further, between 1565 and 1857, there were 78 governor generals, but only 22 archbishops. The average period of posting for the governor generals was barely four years, while the archbishops who ran the ecclesiastical administration served for an average of 11 years. The result of this constant turnover of high-ranking government officials, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries, was that the church became the primary instrument of social welfare, disaster management, and reconstruction within a centralized colonial bureaucracy marked by periodic corruption and factionalism. The mendicant and preaching orders, the Dominicans, Augustinians, Franciscans, Jesuits and Recollects, controlled the Philippine church and they were the central arm of social welfare. Strategically placed friars and parish priests spoke the various dialects of the islands. In the early modern period, often they alone could help mobilize local people and institutions in a time of calamity. And they also often offered Filipinos their only source of immediate assistance in the face of calamity. Throughout the period of Spanish rule, there was a tendency to consider natural disasters, whether typhoons, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, or epidemics as deific acts to be forms of divine punishment inflicted upon the Filipinos for their sins, or alleged lack of duty and piety. The priests depicted these disaster events in apocalyptic terms as powerful signs of the wrath of God. Not surprisingly, mass conversions sometimes occurred in the wake of calamity and the priests as religious heads and religious practitioners frequently took decisive steps to bring about relief by mobilizing labor and through prayer and the invocation of divine intercession. Uh, and this reminds me, I don't know if, if any of you have seen the film Black Robe uh, set in French Canada at, uh, in, in the early part of the 17th century. The remarkable scene at the end of the film when the, uh, this Uran village has been decimated um, as a consequence of an epidemic and the shaman in the village pleads with this Jesuit father to use the water cure or baptism in an effort to hopefully save some of the people in his community. Uh, The church in this context then acted as a circuit breaker to prevent upheaval and rural unrest in the aftermath of such a disaster with large numbers of people often displaced, malnourished, or starving. After the overthrow of the Spanish, the U.S. insular government learned quickly that a widespread typhoon disaster could overnight turn a former commodity producing area into an economic wasteland. Private donors and relief agencies entered into such disaster zones with relief goods and funding, but also, and more importantly, often with the prospect of wage paying employment. The insular government quickly learned that the economic impacts of post disaster relief could overwhelm local community capacities and create mistrust and distortions in the local economy. Hence, the supply of relief stores, especially rice and timber, were often handled at cost by the insular authorities which prevented local merchants from monopolizing the distribution of such goods and inflating prices. Furthermore, rather than merely responding to what had occurred after a disaster had happened, the American authorities now began to introduce measures to mitigate against the disaster before it occurred through establishing farmer cooperatives, distributing a variety of crop seeds for immediate planting and advancing loans without crippling strings attached. But the mountainous island topography of the Philippine environment, its dense forests and location on both the Pacific Ring of Fire and lying across the Typhoon Belt, meant that not all Indios were treated equally and fairly, especially on the large Visayan island of Samar. By the latter part of the 19th century, the Samareños had become increasingly vulnerable to drought, because of the amount of land appropriated for abaca cultivation on high risk tracks and the fluctuating global market value for such a cash crop. At the same time, the interior, rugged and forested, remained far less populated and more difficult to govern. In the half century from 1882 to 1932, the Sama population experienced recurring famines chronic hunger and widespread epidemics. While the topography and weather constantly hindered a sustainable way of life, the deprivation and hunger was also embedded in the local social hierarchies and the global political economy. In this context, the crisis on Sama was about an entire social system under chronic stress, one that exposed the contradictions of colonial disaster administration and a society at large torn apart. By the late Spanish era, thousands of poor farmers and laborers from this area had joined anti-colonial movements. The small city of Cap Bolongan connected the wealthy provinces of the west, uh, the west side of samoa with smaller towns like San Luis and Taft on the east coast. It was, in hospi- it was inhospitable forested terrain that stretched between these the two coasts. Spanish officials and Chinese mestizo traders passed through this hilly dangerous territory on horseback and foot in constant fear of attack from bandits descending from poor isolated villages. Entire interior districts in the late 19th century were havens for banditry, which increased in these times of famine and epidemic. climatic event-related food shortages and famine produced folk messianism and mass migration on Sama and in the Visayas in the late 1880s. Between 1878 and 1932, thousands of peasants, inspired by Babalon or shaman, fled. Uh, flight itself was a form of risk spreading designed to cope with food shortages due to consecutive bad harvests and global price shocks. Hungry, indebted farmers settled on land in the rugged interior beyond the reach of Spanish and American authority. These poor farmers believed they had the right to settle and cultivate virgin land throughout the Visayas, where the traditional means of mitigating against famine was to relocate. The moves were either voluntary or involuntary, depending on the gravity of the situation. These migrations of starving peasant populations also signified a turn toward autonomy and self-determination. Prospects were grim in the aftermath of the famines in 1878, 79, and 1902, 1903. Visayan peasants refused to risk staying home where they would possibly starve to death. They joined forces with armed insurgents and folk messianic movements to challenge the power of both the Spanish and American colonial administrators. The El Niño oscillation had a major impact on ecological and economic shifts that occurred in these isolated communities beyond the reach of colonial power. Seeing from a purely colonial standpoint, these changes wrought among debt-bonded wage laborers and immigrant sharecro- sharecroppers were foreboding. In 1884, Spanish forces crushed a millennial rebellion triggered by widespread hunger and the outbreak of a cholera epidemic on Salmon near Gandara. Two years later, a new hill-based movement called Dios Dios, spawned by the same miserable conditions, emerged. Because they wore red garments, The Dios Dios were called Pulahanas. Their power waxed and waned, but widespread famine and a cholera epidemic in the 1880s boosted their ranks, reflecting the scale of the Samaraños' deprivation and disempowerment. The Pulahanas' appeal to the supernatural was accepted as part of their weaponry. The tensions that existed between the Samaraños and the Spanish became even more acute under American rule. Both sides were on the defensive, waiting for the other to strike preemptively, as Sama played a central role in the Philippine-American War of 1899 to 1902. Sama and Leyte suffered unmercifully during this war. Low intensity warfare was waged on both islands. Villages and fields were routinely torched and an infamous order was issued to kill all the inhabitants of Samar, men, women, and children who were over 10 years of age. War worked in combination with drought and storms to lay waste to Samar and Leyte in the first decade of the 20th century. Thousands of squatters originally displaced by famine were once again reduced to begging for food or eating roots and grass as the war swirled around them and thousands starved to death in one of the most infamous, episodes of the Philippine American war.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, thank you so much, Professor Warren. Uh, thank you, Archisman for your question. Thank you, Philip for your question. Um, and on behalf of all of us, thank you once One final time, Professor Warren, uh, for joining us today and discussing your extensive research in such depth. Um, As I've said before, we were truly honored to have you as our guest on our podcast today. And I think that I speak for all of us when I say that our knowledge in terms of monocrop agriculture in the Philippines and the general abusive and oppressive impacts impacts of monocrop agriculture upon Filipino colonial subjects has been enriched by your podcast today. Finally, thank you so much to our listeners for downloading um, or navigating over to our Appraising Risk website, and once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
0: The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to
3: acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project, Praising Risk, Past and Present,
0: interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.